0: He actually said to me, once you get cars in your blood, you will never get it out. And I remember at the time thinking, that's a weird thing to say, and now I'm looking back almost 20 years later of being in the the car business, and he was absolutely right.
1: Welcome to Career View Mirror, the automotive podcast that goes behind the scenes with key players in the industry looking back over their careers so far, sharing insights to help you with your own journey. I'm your host, Andy Fox. Greg Hedgepeth, listeners. Greg is the CEO of Turner's Auto Retail Division in New Zealand. Turner's is an iconic New Zealand brand that's been proudly helping Kiwis buy and sell vehicles and equipment since 1967. With over 30 branches nationwide... Turner's Group, NZ, is the largest seller of cars, trucks and machinery in New Zealand. Greg has over 15 years' experience in agency and corporate environments, gained in roles in New Zealand, the United Kingdom and the United States. He's successfully operated across a number of industry categories, including automotive, media, FMCG, travel and financial services. He has a proven track record in strategic brand development development of high-performing teams, and delivering positive bottom-line results. As you'll hear in our conversation, he's passionate about driving staff engagement and enhanced customer experience. We talk about the fun he had, getting the travel bug out of his system before he settled down to a career in advertising, how that was such a good fit for him before he transitioned into automotive, where he's remained ever since. I hope you enjoy listening to Greg's story and that you identify elements that resonate with you. you. <music> This episode of Career View Mirror is brought to you by the Aquila Academy. At the Academy, we turn individual development into a team sport. We bring together small groups of leaders from non-competing organisations to form their very own academy team. We build strong connection between team members and create a great environment for sharing and learning. We introduce the team to content that can help them tackle their current challenges and we hold them accountable to take the actions that they decide are their priorities. We say, we hold our team members' feet to the fire of their best intentions. We do this internationally with teams across the world. If you'd like to learn more about the Academy, go to www.aquali.co.uk. Hello, Greg, and welcome. Where
0: are you coming to us from today? Uh, I'm coming from Auckland, New Zealand, Andy.
1: That is just so good. You're our first guest in Auckland. In spite of the fact that I know quite a lot of people in Auckland and New Zealand, you're our first guest. I'm delighted to have you. Thank you for joining me and I'm looking Great forward to, your, to hearing your story. Let's start though with where did it start for you? Where were you born and where did you grow up?
0: Well funnily enough, uh, Auckland, New Zealand uh, is, uh, is where I, I started my journey um, at the other side of the Harbour Bridge, so on the north shore of, uh, of Auckland uh, in a place called Tor Bay was where I was born and, and raised, um, lovely part of the world, you know, beaches and spent a lot of time uh, at, out and about uh, playing tennis and riding my bike and hanging out at the beach as a child and doing all that sort of uh, good stuff that you can do here in, in New Zealand. And, um, yeah, so I grew up on the North Shore, uh, went to primary and intermediate uh, near my, my, my home. Uh, and then when I got to college age, I uh, went to a college in Takapuna called Rosmany College. It's a Catholic boys uh, high school. And the, the reason I actually ended up going there was my brother went to the local school. And let's say he just uh, had a, a fairly relaxing time there. So my parents were adamant that I wasn't going to go there as well. <laughs> and uh, sent, sent me along to uh, a Catholic boys school, which uh, at, at the time I, I probably wasn't overly that uh, excited about because all my friends were uh, were going to uh, to the local school. And uh, yeah, when I got there, it was a bit of a culture shock. It was certainly very strict and regimented, and uh, you know, you you had to do what you were told, otherwise you'd, you'd get a whack around the legs with the with the cane. But when I look back on that now, I'm very thankful uh, that I did end up going there. And I think some of the life skills that taught me and you know the the diligence around getting work done and 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 delivering, I think yeah, you know, it was it was certainly helpful in that respect. So. I uh, came out of there and got my my university entrance and got good grades and and everything. And uh, I may not have actually had those sort of results, I think, if I hadn't have uh, gone to a school like that, particularly, I think, you know, because of the fact that when I was 16, my mother passed away from cancer. And so it was probably quite a turbulent time in my life. Uh, And that was right when I was doing all my exams and so forth. So, um so yeah I, I made it through and uh, i look back on on that as a, a positive experience for me and and i have uh, reasonably fond memories of uh, of that high school and whilst there was you know some not so fond memories going on at that time and yeah in my life so
1: you had i am sorry i didn't know uh, you'd lost your mum so early craig you had an older brother mm-hmm. who was obviously like the uh, the test pilot for the school. <laughs> yeah. and uh, did you have other siblings?
0: No, just just the one older brother, it was just my mum and dad and and me and my brother Matt
1: Right. And uh, so the discipline or the uh, the rigor for of education your parents thought you could uh do with a little bit more and uh, it sounds like it worked out well for you. But let's just say if you don't mind, you know, what was the impact of losing your mum at 16?
0: Well, it's yeah, it's a bit of a blur, really. I look back on that and think, uh, you know, possibly the my brain has kind of uh, um, you know blocked some of it out. But yeah, it was, it was fairly painful, and uh, I to this day I think you know I'm, I'm I am very thankful that I I've made it th- through. And I you know could have very easily have kind of gone off the rails. She was. A driving force uh, in my life. So, uh, without her there at that time, uh, it was tough. But somehow managed to to get through, and and I'm still here today. So I can I'm pretty thankful for that.
1: Yeah. No. Well, certainly you've made it through, haven't you? You made a, a success of your of your life so far. And yeah, it's important. Just not not for you now. I'm just thinking, generally speaking, these things that happen to us when we're younger, they they can have a lasting effect and be still affecting our decision making and our behaviours, you know, way down the line. So worth keeping an eye on those things. As I know from personal experience, that's uh, that's what I'm driving at there. Nothing about your situation in particular. So what was your, I always ask my guests, Greg, what sort of roles they had visibility of when they were, when they were youngsters so what did you see your dad doing or you know what job your mum had or things like that?
0: No I mean I don't think any of my parents uh, jobs really had any influence on me my father was actually a retired navy uh, lieutenant commander so yeah he was uh, essentially retired for most of my Upbringing, uh, and he uh, he joined the the services very young, and then retired quite young. So they both had various roles, and I, I don't really think it had too much of an impact uh, on me, with the exception of uh, he was a pilot, and he was uh, you know very much into machines and technology and planes and and cars and so forth. And I think uh, that fascination around machines and planes and and cars, particularly, uh, flowed through to me, and I've I've always had a a, a passion. Uh, for cars since I was a little kid and in fact on the plane side of things when I was growing up and when I was about uh, 11 years old uh, up to about 11 years old and this was the era of Top Gun uh, when that came out and, and um, my dad was a pilot and I desperately wanted to be a pilot and Top Gun came out and I got the haircut and and you know, I thought it was pretty cool and you know I was uh, on my way to be the pilot I was you know kind of getting the the grades that you'd kind of need to get and subjects like maths and things like that uh, and it was all very much focused around being a, a pilot and then i was at intermediate school one day and they did these random color testing uh colorblind testing charts and they uh, sent the results home uh, and mine was a fail and my parents were like what no that doesn't sound right at, at all and they said what what color is that pot it's blue what color that wall it's white and this is rubbish they've got it wrong and then so they t- took me along to a uh, proper eye clinic testing uh colorblind testing and yeah sure enough they put up the charts with the dots and i saw some of them and then some of someone was going no there's nothing on that one uh and they came out and said Yes, you are your colorblind, your red, green, colorblind. Uh, it's a, it's quite common in males apparently. I think it's like 10-15% of males have this this type of colourblindness where you can't distinguish reds and greens at a distance. Like my the practical example in New Zealand for, for, for those that know there's a plant called the Pahutakawa tree, and it's a green tree with red flowers. And at at a hundred meters, I can see the red flowers at 200 meters, it just all looks green to me. And that's the only practical application I've ever found of, of this colorblindness. But if you're colorblind, you're colorblind. And if you're colorblind, you can't be a pilot. So that was quite a crushing blow, uh, probably for me and for my parents at the time. It was definitely disheartening uh, for a while, but I was a youngster and I kind of, I guess, moved on and wasn't really thinking about my long-term career too much at that point in time. So it was about when I was in high school, towards the tail end of my time at uh, Rosemary College, started thinking more seriously about, okay, what am I going to be? And I was good at maths and good at accounting, and I actually thought I'm going to be an accountant. And so was uh, kind of heading down that road and got my university entrance and then went to Auckland University, enrolled in a Bachelor of Commerce with a focus on accounting. And interestingly, I did year one accounting and very quickly realized that I found it very boring. And that there was no way I was ever going to spend my whole life just kind of scrolling through numbers and doing an, an accountancy type role. So I pivoted at that point um, and, I, and I felt to myself, you know, I, I, creativity is something I'm, I'm uh, interested in as well. Uh, yes, I'm interested in the business world, but I'm you know, I'm certainly interested in creativity. So that, that's where I pivoted into marketing and found that was, you know, felt it was a pretty good combination of the two. So started gearing my my papers in the direction of my uh, degree all towards marketing and international business.
1: How was the creativity showing up in those early days, Greg? What what were you thinking of when you recognised that you're interested in creativity?
0: I mean, as a youngster, I guess I always used to like to draw and write stories and, and all that sort of stuff you do as, as a kid. So i had more interest in that than just numbers number based uh work or or hobbies uh and then the the whole idea of just advertising and marketing i guess had really intrigued me as to okay how do they develop these ads and these campaigns and what are they trying to achieve and how does it all work and so you know you watch the watching tv um and you the advertisements that are on and i used to watch those and think that'd be really interesting to understand how all that came about and and how they pulled all that together so going down that marketing route seemed like the logical step and something that I was I was really interested in and it yeah, as I said it, it felt like you could bring a, a creative angle to a business uh, a bit more serious uh, topic.
1: So when you left university what direction were you heading in there and what steps were you taking?
0: Well it was it was, <laughs> it was interesting actually because um, I, I went to university and I was uh, yeah going through uh, that uh, going down that direction, and I had a part time role working at a company called PSP, which was basically granite bench tops. They they manufactured granite bench tops. So I did, had a part time role while I was at university, where I was measuring up and quoting. Uh, off paper, not not going on site, they'd send through plans and I'd measure up and and produce quotes uh, for these granite bench tops for this company. And I'd go in for a a few hours each day and and do a bit of that work. And when I finished university, they asked me to come on board as a a marketing assistant uh, role. They knew that I was doing a a, a marketing degree. So that was essentially my first role outside of uh, after university was working in their marketing department, helping market their services. Yeah, kitchen companies and and to consumers and so forth so it was that was fun it was good it was based in albany it was near where i lived and i enjoyed it but all the while uh what else was happening uh was i discovered i had a love for uh, snowboarding and 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 the snow and so most weekends while i was at university me and my friends would jump in the car on a friday night we'd drive down to awakuni and uh spend the weekend down there snowboarding and yeah certainly got very hooked on that and then a lot of my friends then started taking off to in the summertime. They, they were going to to North America and staying at the ski resorts there. And in the wintertime, to down to Queenstown. So I wasn't able to do this because I'd been at university, uh, and then I started this job, and uh, and I was uh, pretty envious of uh, of their position. So essentially, I made the call after a year that I I was going to take a break and I was going to go get this out of my system and spend a couple of years going snowboarding and uh with my friends while I while I still could and while they were still doing it. So so yeah that's exactly what I did. I moved to um Down to Queenstown in the winter, and and then I was going to went up to the states uh, to a place called Squaw Valley the first uh, season, and back to Queenstown, and then the next one up to a place called Breckenridge in Colorado. So, I did that for a couple of years, which was awesome. and totally loved it. You know, never never done it any differently, and I still snowboard to this very day, not probably as good as I I once did uh, back then. But yeah, it was it was fantastic. But after the two years, I said, okay, well. that was good but I need to I need to get on with life now I need to need to get back in, into it and and a lot of my friends didn't and they and some of them still to this very day are uh, living in ski resorts uh, around the world and uh, you know instructors and doing things like that uh, or living in Queenstown and you know living a life down there but also spending most of the time in the snow whereas I just tend to do it on a you know once a year winter holiday somewhere these days but yeah it was it was a great great time of my life and I, I certainly think there's something to be said for life experience um around the world uh when you're growing up as opposed yeah. to just the classroom or, or business
1: so how, how long had you been at university When, how far through your course were you when you decided to take the time oh, I out finished. i
0: finished you finished yeah, yeah. okay yeah, yeah yeah you know i i was i was adamant i needed to get that done I, I oh okay was- I thought, no, but I was thinking if I, if I don't finish it, I'll never go back. Okay. Um, so. Yeah, well, that's,
1: the, the, yeah, the concerned parent in me is glad to hear that you <laughs> Yeah, back, no, but. I was
0: realistic enough to know that if I didn't do it, um and in fact, they invited me back to do, I got, the grades that I got at university were good enough that they invited me back to um, to do a master's. And um I, I did say at the time, look, I'm, it's great to get that offer, but um I need to go and, do some world travels and get some world experience, and then I'll come back and do that at some point in time. Right. Now, fast forward to today, I, I have never gone back to do that because I've just always had uh, other things going on. And I, to be honest, I've kind of just felt my career has progressed okay uh, to the point where I probably just didn't feel like I needed to go back and get that an yeah. extra like, credential. So,
1: and when you were overseas snowboarding, were you working? Then, or was it just pleasure, or were you instructing, or what were
0: you doing? Uh, no, just pleasure. Yeah, I'd, I'd kind of in the breaks in between, I'd paint houses. um So just go hard and just spend like three months painting houses, save up money, and then get enough money to go over and then you know spend three months there while well, the snow was good and then come back do the same then go down to Queenstown you yeah, know so it's kind of three months in Auckland working three months overseas three months in Auckland working three months in Queenstown so yeah that, that that went on for a couple of years
1: okay and finally that came to an end and you came back to Auckland and what happened then
0: then I actually went back to that same company uh, and uh, got. They they had a role that they um, they said yeah because they said we'd we'll take you back if um if if you want to come back so I went back there, uh, was working there and then I was actually only there for about six months where I, where I got the, the the bug again and and basically said I actually want to now go overseas and do my OE and go to the UK.
1: So OE is yeah. a, a phrase you hear a lot in New Zealand. Greg, so overseas experience, is
0: it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, given how isolated we are as a country, uh, every young Kiwi, I think, uh, has dreams or aspirations of going and seeing the world. And I'm, I'm not quite sure what the status is at the moment. Obviously, with COVID, it's it's probably not that great. But um, from a visa perspective, I think things have changed a little bit from from my day. But uh, but back then, your your average Kiwi could get a two year visa and go to the UK and and get. Um, part-time or contractual work in London and you know make enough money to go explore Europe which is exactly what I did.
1: Okay so how long did you do that for?
0: Well it was interesting actually because my actual plan of attack was to start with was not to go to London but actually to go to Majorca, where my best friend was working on the mega yachts over there out of Majorca. so what I was going to do was fly to Mallorca, go meet meet up with him. We were going to get jobs on on mega yachts and spend the summer going around the Mediterranean, go see see Europe, and then do that for sort of six months. And then once I'd done that, then go to London and and start my, uh, you know, a bit more of an office-based um, career or, or, or job schedule and base myself out of London. So, funny story, I, so I flew over there and I got to London and this was before the days of of cell phones and facebook and and things like that it was kind of you know everyone was just getting gmail accounts and you'd check that every you'd go to an internet cafe and check that once a week or something so I turned up in London and um, was waiting for this friend of mine to to, to turn up. He'd been in, in the States and he was supposed to fly from the States to London and with me there. We were going to have my birthday with some friends and then fly to down to Majorca and uh, in time for the season to start. So it was about April and I'm in London and I'm waiting for him and no word and uh, can't get in touch with him and thinking this is really weird. A couple of weeks go by and... Then I eventually get a, a, a connect with him on the phone. Turns out he was in America and he'd overstayed in America uh, when he was doing some boat work there. And when he flew from the, the America to the UK at Heathrow, the customs agent there figured out, oh, you've stayed seven months in America and you're only supposed to stay six months. And he said, yeah. And he, he'd only bought a one-way ticket from America to London with the view that then we'd get a... Easy jet from London down to Mallorca in a few weeks' time. So, this officer at Heathrow said, Sorry, we're not going to let you in, and turned him away. And then they put him on a plane back to America, and then America deported him back to New Zealand. <laughs> and so, here I am in the UK going, Where is he? This is really strange. <laughs> and, um, and uh, eventually, and chewing through my money, which was, you know, England turning into English pounds at a three-to-one rate, was was go- going down quite rapidly, and. Uh Talked to him and he was all gutted and then he basically said, I've got a bunch of work I need to do to get a visa to get back over to that side of the world. I'm working with the embassy, blah, blah, blah. Cut a long story short, it was three months before he got there. So I stayed and it was in London three months, but it was always, I hope, I'm hope, hopefully I'll be there in a couple of weeks' time. So it was kind of no point me getting a job because uh, I thought any day now I'm out of here. He eventually turned up. Uh, and then we took off down to Majorca, and um, unfortunately we'd kind of missed the start of the season and all the boats had gone and we stayed down there did some work on day work on boats and and had a nice time, but it wasn't exactly what I thought uh, it was going to be in terms of actually cruising around the, the wider Mediterranean. But on the flip side of that, the big positive that came from that, over the time I was stuck in London, I was spending time uh, with a, a, a girl uh, from New Zealand who I knew, uh, who was now my wife, and it was that time that we spent together and, and got together, and then she came down and saw me in Mallorca, and then after... A I've been in New York for six months. I kind of went, right, I'm going back to see her and, and moving to London. Uh, and uh, we've been together ever since. So I always love it. Uh, say to uh, to my kids, you know, if it wasn't for Uncle Adam uh, getting kicked out of uh, uh, of, the, <laughs> of the UK, uh, we might not be here today. Uh, so, yeah, a, every, everything happens for a reason, I guess. And, uh, and that was absolutely a, a positive that came out of a, a, a negative uh, situation.
1: I love it. What a happy ending. Mm. Um, Brilliant. So where does that take us, Greg?
0: To London. um, And so then I moved to London and um, spent about a year, year and a half there and just did, as Kiwis do, just different kind of roles, financing, kind of short-term contracts, three months here, three months there. I worked for Woolworths at one point, worked for ABB Group at another point. Yeah, just basically uh, did these roles and then went travelling for a few months. You know, we hired a van at one point and um, went through did 10 weeks around Europe in the van with me and and, and my, my girlfriend at the time, who's my wife now, and yeah, had a great time. And then her visa was up because she, she got there before me and we were thinking about what we were going to do. And then some friends of ours that were living in the States said, come visit us on holiday in Florida. We went over and did that. We escaped the English winter. And it was this beautiful paradise, a uh, place called Sarasota, Florida. And they said, then we said, Wow, well, this is amazing. And they said, well, why don't you guys come stay and live here? And um, we've got a ha- big house and you can stay with us. And so we did that, actually. So we left uh, after about a, a year and a half in, in the UK. We went to the States, lived there and did some work there. I was working for the... For Got a job selling advertising for a a New York Times subsidiary, the local newspaper down there, the Sarasota Herald Tribune. And uh, we worked down there and and had a great time. But then once again, after about a year, we kind of got a bit homesick and went, you know, this has been nice and it's paradise, but it's probably time to get home to New Zealand and start thinking about settling down and a family and all that sort of stuff. And as most Kiwis do, whenever the idea of marriage and family comes up, first thing they think is get home to New Zealand, right, because it's a great place to, to raise your kids. So that's what we did. Came back to New Zealand and uh, left the States and, yeah, and then, then settled into, I guess, the, the probably the, the my, my actual career, got the had all the travel and everything out of the... Uh, out out of my system uh, and came back to New Zealand. And and at that point, you know, so I'd done some marketing roles, I'd done some finance roles, uh, but what I was really feeling quite passionate about was actually drilling more into the side of marketing around advertising and actually the actual creating of the campaigns and and so forth. So I ended up getting a job uh, with a small uh, advertising agency in Auckland uh, called Metro Media, uh, which was an independent agency. It was about twenty people up in Ponsonby. Uh, a couple of couple of young guys ran it, and uh, yeah, started working uh, with them as uh, as account manager. Uh, basically, running a few different accounts for them, and it was it was it was great. It was it was kind of everything I wanted to do. I found my my place, I found my footing. And uh, this is my career. As a studio, I, I at that point, I said to myself, you know, from the creativity angle, from the dealing with people, from the understanding and uh, your consumers and, you know, and and actually being able to create activities or campaigns that have an impact. And you can see the impact, all, all that stuff really resonated with me. And I was, I was happy and thinking, you know, I found my way forward. and And, and this is me. So, I did that for a couple of years, I think two or three years, and then uh, a friend of mine who was also in the advertising industry, who I uh, who I went, grew up with and uh, and and went to university with, contacted me and said, and he was working at Saatchi and Saatchi, and he said, "We've got a role going here, and um, you know, I think think it could be perfect for you uh, doing being an account manager at Saatchi and Saatchi." And of course, uh, at that point in time. probably the only advertising agency that anyone in the world's ever heard of outside of the industry was Saatchi & Saatchi, and particularly in New Zealand, Saatchi & Saatchi. New Zealand had a really good reputation. It had been voted, you know, top 10 agencies globally uh, in recent years, and the creativity aspect of the New Zealand advertising industry was world-renowned, and part of that's, uh, I think, you know, Kiwi ingenuity, but part of it was probably about the ability to actually create campaigns without having to go through massive bureaucracies of global Corporates where you've got to get approval from fifteen people around the planet in order to get a campaign away, and you know that stifles creativity. To be honest, and the edginess of it disappears, and when the edginess disappears, the effectiveness disappears as well. To, to be fair, so Sachi globally was at, at the pinnacle, and Sachi and Sachi New Zealand was at the at the pinnacle of the, the Sachi Empire and, and the global advertising industry. So. I leapt at that opportunity uh, and took that role. It was sad to say goodbye to the guys at Metro Media. I'd, I'd become quite close to them, but they understood that it was yeah, you know, I couldn't turn this uh, opportunity down. Uh, so I took took the role of Sachi and Sachi and, and did, did account manager for a couple of years, and then uh, I think it was yeah, two or three years after that, got promoted to an account director, and I was working on brands like Emirates, uh, Lexus. Uh, did some work on toyota and um new zealand dairy foods which was uh, is now Fonterra, and it was also amazing culture it was you know work hard play hard and uh it wasn't quite the the mad men uh like uh, that like you see in the stereotypes of the big boozy lunches and the the whiskey cabinet in the office and all that sort of scenario that had probably stopped about 10 years before i i got there but uh, it Was certainly a fun environment and it was, uh, yeah, it was deaf, but you you worked hard for your money. Like, it, there was barely a night went by when, uh, when I didn't leave the office, you know, until seven or eight o'clock at night, and, and everyone was in there. The place would be humming, uh and, uh, and sometimes it would be humming, and people would be having you know, drinks at their desk while working and spitballing ideas and, and so forth. And it was great. And I thought to myself at that time, I'm here, I've, I, you know, I've I've made it. This is the best it could be. I'm, you know, an account director at Saatchi, and Saatchi, uh we're making all these all this great work and winning awards and uh, you know, things are going really well and I didn't think at that point in time uh, that I would leave advertising. I thought I'd, i had certainly found my my place in the world and found my career path and and you know, thought to myself I'm probably going to, you know, just uh, work my way up through the Saatchi and Saatchi and see where that goes. And things were going well. Um, and then, and then one day I, I got a call from someone I knew and said, Oh, yeah, I understand you're, you're working at Saatchi and Saatchi and you're, you're, you're working on these campaigns and you're working with Lexus. And, and they talked to me about a, a, a role, um, at BMW New Zealand, uh, working, uh, on the mini brand. And the, the, it was actually a, a family friend who, uh, was actually the, the, the stepmother of the guy Adam who I met who was I was going on the boats with in the UK. So the funny coincidence. So she was working at uh, BMW New Zealand, she was in an HR and she'd been. He came home one holiday and he was telling her, I oh, agree, yeah, with such and such now, and blah, blah, blah. He's this advertising guy. And it turned out that the uh, at BMW New Zealand, the mini brand, which had been launched, I think, about four or five years beforehand and started off with a hiss and a roar, it started to slow down. And the general feeling was that the brand, the management of the brand in New Zealand wasn't quite going to plan. And that was, and it's such a lifestyle brand focused product. They felt they needed someone to come in and I guess you could say juice it up and, and get the brand back on, on track. So yeah, she had this conversation, random conversation with him when he was back in New Zealand for a couple of weeks. And then he gave her my number and she she called me out of the blue and said,, uh, yeah, um, would you be interested in coming and having a conversation with us uh, about you know, a, a role here? At the, basically it was the general manager of, of Mini. So it was it was not just the brand. it was the, it was the total business running running it. Um, so I had that conversation it, it still at the time I was thinking you know I'm an advertising guy now. This is interesting to me, but I'm an advertising guy. I love cars and I always have loved cars, super passionate about cars. I had like hotted up kind of cars as I was growing up and spent money kind of putting tinted windows and big exhausts and thing on, on, on my cars. Uh, you could uh, you could call me a boy racer, I guess, uh, at one particular time of my life. So that was of interest to me. And the Mini brand was quite a cool, edgy brand. So I was thinking that, that yeah, okay, let's. I'm open to having a conversation. Uh, but at the heart of it, I remember thinking, but I'm an advertising guy, uh, so that doesn't really feel like uh, like me. On the flip side of it, when I came down to decision time and they actually offered me the role, I, I said, "Well, you know what? It, it actually can't hurt if I was to spend a year or two and going working in this big corporate, uh, because then I've got client side experience uh, that will." Serve me well uh, as I progress my career up through uh, the, the senior ranks of the advertising industry. There's nothing like being able to say, Well, you know, I've been on both sides of the fence, I understand what, how it works, and I, I empathize with you. And I thought, Yeah, that will be actually a, a, a good, a smart stepping stone for me to take in my, uh, in my career in the advertising world.
1: Was it then, it sounds like quite a rational decision Greg it wasn't like your head was turned you fell in love with the idea when you had the interview or it sounds like you you could talk yourself into it a little bit was it like that
0: yeah I think so it was a bit it was it was pretty uh calculated I guess I mean I'd been at Saatchi's for five years and whilst I was I was happy there I kind of was like okay five years that feels like it could be time for a change. So all things happen for a reason. And yeah, uh, maybe this is a, a the, it's time. And I take a couple of years doing this, understand it, and uh, and then I'll get back into it and the advertising industry and come back even stronger. So don't get me wrong, the allure of working in a, in a car business was really strong for me. And the product was, you know, it was really cool product and um, yeah, premium BMW product, but the thought of working in a corporate business was a bit scary for me because, as I said before, <laughs> it was a, yeah, in the middle of our office, there was a 30 foot long bar that was stocked. Like it looked like you'd just walked into a bar on Ponsonby Road, like beers everywhere and bottles of wine and four o'clock on the Friday and. Yeah, the the receptionist would come around with a cocktail cart and she'd be making cocktails and music pumping and stuff. So it was quite a a fun environment. And so the the idea of going back into a a corporate world was a a little bit nerve wracking. But as I said, I I thought it would actually serve me well. So it was quite a rational decision, but I'm thinking long term and I always do try to think long-term when I'm making decisions and not just be short-term and impulsive. I thought it ticked a lot of boxes in that respect. So I thought it would be a, a positive overall.
1: And how was the reality then compared to uh, the sort of rational assessment that you'd done? What was the experience like for you?
0: It, it was a stark contrast. It was really like when I walked, so I was wearing jeans and a shirt shirt every day at Saatchi's and then turned up at BMW and it was like, well, everyone's in ties and suits and, and everything and, you know, you walk into the office and it's deadly silent. There's no noise whatsoever, no music going. So it was it was pretty stuffy to be fair. And uh, I, I must admit, I was thinking at some point, what have I done? This is potentially a, a massive mistake and my work-life enjoyment uh, factor might go out the window uh, a little bit. But um, a guy called Mark Gilbert, uh, who uh, who you know, Andy, uh, he he hired me. Uh, He was the one that, that, that ultimately made that decision and brought me in. He actually said to me, once you get cars in your blood, you will never get it out. And I remember at the time thinking, oh, that's a weird thing to say, I don't, don't really know what, he, know what he means. And now I'm looking back uh, you know, almost 20 years later of being in the, in the car business, and he was absolutely right. I think once you do get into the car industry or the automotive industry, it is quite challenging to to leave that industry and go into selling widgets or screwdrivers or whatever it might be because it just doesn't have the flair or the passion or the uh, excitement I think of dealing with you know buying and selling cars and experiencing uh, you know all that product and, and the good things that come along with it so um, and to uh, to his credit uh, he was open to change uh, and changing that environment to uh, to a degree so over time uh, I was able to Lose the ties, uh, convince them to lose the ties, and lose the suits. And uh, I think by probably by the time uh, you were at uh, BMW uh, New Zealand, it was a bit more informal than that. It certainly wasn't suits and ties every day like it was when I turned up there in uh, in 2007. And yeah, from from that point, I did that uh, role for I think it was a, about a, a couple of years, and then uh, he asked me if I wanted to. I, he was happy with how the marketing pr- improvements program was going on mini and so he asked me if I'd actually take over that for BMW as well uh so I moved into a BMW and mini role uh, handling the the marketing for for both of those brands did that for a year uh and then he uh, uh was was happy with how that was going so he had uh, asked me to actually then just take over sales and marketing for the for the entire company for BMW and for mini so I was the head of sales and marketing uh, and that went for, that role was uh, for about five years and uh, that was that was good actually, it was a good competitive battle uh, we were, uh, you know, market leadership is super important to those premium brands and when I took over the business, uh, we were uh, a distant uh, second to Audi, uh, which had been pretty strong for the last few years and the, the goal was, you know, get back to number one and, and beat Audi, so there was some work to do, you know. The brand, I think, uh, needed some life support in New Zealand to make the BMW brand relevant to your average Kiwi, who is quite an outdoorsy lifestyle, sporty person. And so we had to to make some tweaks there. And then, you know, working with the dealer network to help them kind of maximize their performance. And always knew it wasn't going to be a overnight uh, success story or an overnight uh, project. But uh, yeah, so it took me three years to get it from a number two uh, into the number one position. So I think it was in 2013 we got back uh, to, to number one, which was the ultimate goal, and that was uh, absolutely, uh, as you would have seen from the head office in, uh, in Germany, uh, very much the uh, the key objective for any market to be in the market leading position for the premium segment. So so that was that was a big coup, and uh, a lot of hard work, and a lot, a lot of a lot of late nights uh, to get to that point, and a lot of. You know, both sales marketing and you know dealer development uh work went on in that space to to achieve that and then uh, yeah managed to um manage to, to to hold on to that uh, that number one position for the next couple of years before the next I guess uh, stage and uh, my career at BMW.
1: You let me before we go there, Greg. Let me yep. just ask you a couple of things about. So well done on getting to number one. As you say, absolutely fundamental focus for those premium brands and you said there was a number of areas you were working across in order to make that happen you brought your experience from the advertising background to think about the customer and what would appeal to a kiwi customer and altering yeah. the positioning i guess of the brand and the messaging around yeah. that and then there was the dealer performance as well one thing that i'm curious about and this is just something that i find absolutely personally fascinating is you had it sounded like, particularly when you were talking about your advertising years you really were in a you, you thought this was it this is where I belong this is me I am at home here I'm performing well and I, I wonder did you find it less easy to perform well in the new environment were you right when you thought that you had landed on your feet in in advertising you in the right place or did you quickly make automotive the right place or was it tougher for you to perform at a high level in a different world than than the one where you were clearly very well suited in, in advertising.
0: Yeah, I mean, look, I, and I certainly don't want to you know, talk negatively on, on anyone that I've worked with, and this is no slight on them whatsoever, but <clears throat> coming out of that advertising industry, where it was, it was quite doggy dog, to be honest. And you know, it really, as I said, you're there till eight o'clock at night. Everyone is absolutely going for it, trying to make sure that their campaign is the best and wins the most awards and is the most effective. And that's kind of your currency in in that industry. So the work ethic and the commitment uh, that I was used to, that I'd been conditioned to, you would say was was at quite a high level. When I, when I came into the BMW environment into a corporate environment, I must admit I was I was quite shocked at you know five o'clock came around and poof, the office was empty like no one was there. It was like crickets. Uh, and I would quite often be there you know for a couple of hours by myself, just working away, getting things done and, and so forth. So I think that that work ethic and like what I was able to, to get through and achieve, Maybe that helped me shine through uh, a bit more in in that BMW world because I was uh, potentially, you know, sort of uh, putting in a bit more effort or, uh, you know, delivering, uh, aspiring to deliver more and make sure that whatever I was working on was done over and above the expectation. Uh, So that is just a a perception, you know, some people may may disagree with that, but that was, I certainly felt that I, I was. Uh, Committed to absolutely delivering great work. And that probably helped um, me get those two or three different promotions or roles that I got.
1: Yeah. So, in that scenario, you stood out because of your work ethic, which had been honed in Saatchi and Saatchi and in that environment. And when you were in the Saatchi and Saatchi environment, the fact that everybody was working like that would have helped you to perform at a higher level. Yeah, so yeah. that was, the, there was that, the behavior yeah. of the people around you.
0: Yeah, and I you. guess on the flip side of that, Andy, the, the one thing I would say about the, that advertising industry when I was doing that at that point in time and, and looking back on it, it's a young person's game. It's almost a young single person's game because you're working late, then you're having drinks with your colleagues afterwards. It's not really a family man's kind of role. And right about the time where I went into the uh, sales and marketing role, I had my first child, like I was married and, and had the first child. So, the whole going out drinking and doing all that sort of stuff it was just absolutely not on my radar anyway. So I didn't, I didn't actually miss any of that, and I, and I, and I, yeah, I was busy with other things to do with my the family life. So the timing on it worked quite well as well. Whereas, yeah, I was happy to, to work hard and, and put in the hours and get everything done, but I wasn't missing out on any of the the, the fun aspects of it. It was just basically at that point in time. Yeah, let's let's excel at work and and also make sure my my family life and, and my my newborn uh, was uh, was well taken care of.
1: Wonderful to hear. And you know, for clarity, I'm not here looking to make a comparison between an advertising company and a car company or Saatchi's and BMW. I'm you know purely interested in what are the factors that help or hinder someone from performing at their highest level. And uh, we've heard there are a couple of examples that uh, you shared with us uh, from your transition from one to the other. So you were saying, Greg, before I uh, stopped you and dived into that, that uh, you were now head of sales and marketing for for BMW. You did that for about three, or it took three years to get the brand up to number one in New Zealand. That got yeah. recognised um, as it would do. It was always the the major focal point of the regional bosses and the headquarters of, you know, where yeah. are you? Are you number one? And yeah. uh, and and then you moved into a different role.
0: Yeah. I mean, just actually just going back to that though, delving into a bit more detail on that, turning that brand around. Yes. There was a lot of work that went on on every aspect of the business, but I do feel that the work we did around the brand was critical to actually achieving the results that we did because as I mentioned, New Zealanders, I think, are we're a very lifestyle-based bunch of people outdoors. you know, surfing at the beach and then going skiing or snowboarding and mountain biking, and you know, this is kind of part of our, our culture. And certainly, the people who can buy BMWs in New Zealand or, or premium cars who have got the money and the disposable uh, assets. You know, they've they've probably got a batch, or they're going to Queenstown all the time, and so all of that lifestyle is quite critical. And as we know, know, your your car is is essentially a badge, it's a reflection of you and how you want people to perceive you. Uh, And yes, some people are very focused on the technical aspects of cars. And it's super important to them that from a machinery point of view, they've got the best technology, or, you know, you could argue the best performance, that being said, you know, you can have the fastest car in the world and you barely get it over 60Ks on the New Zealand road. So, I, you know, for people who are absolutely focused on fast cars, I do often wonder, well, you actually don't get to ever drive it fast. So I kind of don't really see the point in that, but, you know, each their own. So the, the persona of the BMW brand in New Zealand, and this is because it was like, any of these brands is largely driven by the the global. It's a global direction, uh, and the global direction on for BMW was your know, ultimate driving machine, but it was very much about performance and prestige. And we did a bunch of research, and my and my suspicions were confirmed. But your average Kiwi didn't really want a badge of prestige and overt luxury which is kind of what the BMW brand stood for at that point in time. In fact, a lot of the the research groups that we talked to were saying, we actually want the opposite to that. We want understated. We like luxury, but we want nice things, but we want a bit more understated. We want it to reflect our lifestyle. We certainly don't want it to scream rich, overt money. And unfortunately, a lot of the communications that were coming out of head office Kind of had those undertones in them because they do resonate in a lot of markets. Yeah, you know, there's a lot of lot of, I mean, the Asian markets and so forth, very big on luxury, right? They, it's all about luxury and prestige. That's the the key driver. Uh, but for your average Kiwi, not necessarily the case. And we'd actually just gone through the GFC uh, just prior to that, so it was even worse, right? We we had these stories of people going, I own my own company. I've just laid off 20 people. I can't turn up to work in a brand new BMW because how's that going to look? That's the badge of success. And I think there was a there was a comment that came through from one of them around uh, a badge of faded success and talking about yuppies and of the 80s and all this sort of stuff. So there was a massive job to do to change the perception of the of the brand that it did not stand for success. It stood for Ultimate driving machine is the direction we went down. And ultimate driving machine is about what being fit for purpose so you can do anything in any conditions. And so that's the direction we took it. We had to kind of fight the head office in a lot of respects because we were coming up with our own campaigns that weren't in line with the global campaigns and weren't following the global direction. I mean, the look and feel was, but the wording, the messaging was different. And we essentially said, you know what, we're just going to focus on X-Drive, the four-wheel drive product, because that says lifestyle. So let's throw everything we've got at X-Drive. Uh, we came up with a snow driving, the Alpine X-Drive campaign and and, and experience. And we just hammered uh, the X-Drive and anything to do with X-Drive lifestyle functionality, we overspent on that. And we really pulled back and we were more targeted in terms of things like 7 Series. Like in a lot of markets, you would run big ads with 7 is here. And, you know, it's the pinnacle of luxury. We said we actually just want to stay away from that. That's sending the wrong message to 99% of the people we want to talk to. So I think that that played a big part in changing the perception, increasing our sales numbers, and getting us back to number one. And, you know, to to be fair, Audi kind of owned that space and their global comms with Quattro, it said all the right messages to to, to New Zealanders. It was basically, you know, handed to them on a plate from the the German uh, sort of head office up there. So uh, we had to work pretty hard to come up with our own communications that were able to overcome that challenge and uh and ultimately it worked and and got us there and um yeah we 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 got back to number 1 and stayed there while I was um, while I was in the role
1: so Audi's core messaging around four wheel drive and quattro was hitting the sweet spot of the kiwi uh yeah. mentality and you shifted over to that direction and I you mentioned the uh alpine x drive and I smiled a huge smile because I was fortunate to do that at least a couple of times. Just say a couple of words about what that event was, because well, anyone listening, just imagine this, listeners. This is if you want a fun, a fun time, this is it.
0: Yeah, so it was basically, there was a, when there still is, there's a snow farm up in the South Island, up in the mountains there, where essentially it's mainly used for car companies around the globe and tyre companies. They come in and they hire it out over the winter. It's got about five different areas, so you could have five different companies going at any one time. And they go in and they test their cars in in alpine environments and snow environments where they're testing tyres there. And they normally do it under... Complete secrecy. And sometimes the cars are wrapped and so forth. But anyway, we hired some space there and we took 10 or 15 uh, X Drive vehicles up uh, into the snow. And then we would invite customers uh, to come up, sort of, you know, 10, customers a day over a five-day period, come up and drive these cars under the supervision of our uh, awesome instructor, Mike Eady, uh, and he, he would basically teach everyone how to drive in the, in the snow and on ice, and there'd be some technical uh, aspects to it, but the reality was it was just fun. It was just a lot of fun drifting on the snow, doing big figure eights and donuts and, and so forth in the snow, and you couldn't really crash. Uh, well, you you'd probably could, but, yeah, you know, if you did, you'd crash into a snowbank and, to- and get towed out. And it was just an awesome way to experience the product. It got to show the product in its uh, kind of natural environment because a lot of these cars are built in Europe, built for snowy conditions, and, you know, there they are actually. The XDrive technology was was built to be able to handle those conditions and make it safe for people to be able to drive on, on, on snow conditions. So it actually made people better drivers because they learned how to, Handle certain situations, but it ultimately was to give them a lot of fun and create a lot of content that would uh, people could fire out to their friends and family to show them these cars getting drifted around in the, in the snow. So um, yeah, it was, was great. It's, it's still going today, I believe that program.
1: It was very good, and as you say, it's where the manufacturers in the northern hemisphere summer they could go down and do winter testing because yeah, you know, handily it was winter in the southern hemisphere. So then what happened, Greg?
0: So then uh, there was a bit of a shift in the BMW world where sales and, and marketing was was kind of getting split into to two different areas. And, and I totally understand the logic behind that. That being said, uh, I do think there is uh, some power to be when you're able to pull the levers to generate successful results, to be able to pull a marketing and a sales lever at the same time to get the best result there is definitely some power to that but for whatever reason they were decided to, to split sales and marketing and so i took the opportunity because i said well i know sales i know marketing very well Uh, The dealer development side of things, which sat under sales at that point in time in terms of dealing with the dealers and dealing with dealer developments and their buildings and and all that sort of stuff, I had experience with. And there was one part of the business I didn't have any experience with, uh, which it felt like in order for me to round myself out as an automotive professional, I needed to get a better understanding of. So I took over uh, the after sales uh, side of the business or in the Northern Hemisphere, it's called Fixed Operations and took the the head of after-sales role. Um, So yeah, then had about almost two years uh, in after-sales, which was really interesting as well. It was certainly a change of pace for me. if, If you're in a sales role, this the monthly cycle and the pressure that builds up over the month and then coming to the end of the month and hitting the numbers and then you know that exacerbates on a quarterly basis and then you know from an end, end of year to hit that number and uh do what you've got to do to to achieve it uh is gets the adrenaline going it's fairly fast paced and you, you you've got to work pretty hard because you've got to do what you've got to achieve within whatever that time period is if it's a month or or whatever, and you pull a lever in terms of a promotion or launching a campaign and you see the the needle move reasonably quickly, whether it's generating leads and in inquiry or converting those uh, those inquiries into into sales and and making deals happen to achieve numbers. Uh so it's all quite high pace and uh and happening at a rapid rate of knots. When I moved into the after sales uh, role, it was, was quite different. It was a, a very much a, a slower pace because you don't have the ability to move the needle in a month. The changes you're making now, you're essentially going to see them kind of gradually roll out over a one to two year period in terms of parts ordering logistics or yeah, working with the the dealers around their workshop utilization and the and the, the programs they've got to move the debt needle one percent around uh utilization and what that generates uh in terms of uh bottom line results so it was really interesting and i look back at it as something that i needed to do and that i uh i, I would do again uh but it was it was certainly very different to everything that i'd been doing for the past 10, 15 years leading into that because i guess the the pace of it and just the the general what works and what doesn't and how it all works um i think was quite a, a culture shock for me
1: it's interesting how those different paced opportunities can exist within one environment
0: isn't it yeah 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 no it's uh, it was it, it was good but once again i think i was yeah, full of enthusiasm, and then the guys probably got really annoyed with me, to be honest, because uh, they were probably used to kind of doing it a certain way, and when I came in there, I was certainly like, let's try this, and let's, yeah, have we done this, and let's see if we can do this, and, you yeah, know, some of it worked, some of it didn't, but my, my view was, well, it's worth giving it a shot, and we're certainly going to progress more if we fail a few times rather than just sitting back and, and saying, no, that's, that's too hard to do, or I don't think we should bother trying, so...
1: Where had that mindset come from, Greg, that I like what you said there, that we're going to progress more if we fail a few times. Where did you pick that up?
0: I guess that's just, I'd learned that over my career, right? You're going to fail and you're better to fail fast and, and go again than to not try at all. And I think, yeah, you know, certainly coming in under Mark's guidance when I started there in 2007, there was a lot of willingness to to try things and to yeah, let's let's give things a go and and move quickly. Uh, you know, not go through too much of a heavy approval uh, process. I think with the advent of digital and the ability to kind of connect globally and have visibility uh, wherever you are in the world, that sort of slowed down a little bit. I, I felt uh, in BMW world and our ability to make decisions on the ground in New Zealand. This is yeah, towards the, the end of my 10 years there. It, it felt like uh, yeah, we had to jump through a lot more hoops and get people to approve things at the head office level, which is always challenging, I think, when you're dealing with uh, a lot of the times people haven't been to a country on the other side of the world. They don't understand the nuances or the culture or or what's going on there. Uh, so to to have people needing to approve things of, of a place they've never been to, uh, sometimes I think, it slows things down. Something times you can't get things approved because uh, it just isn't what's happening in different parts of the world. And I don't think it's a one size fits all these days. I think there is reasons for doing things differently. Some things you need to do the same, but some things you need to have some flexibility on. And uh, that potentially uh, got a little bit tougher over the time uh, I was there. And uh, yeah, by the time I, I left, it felt like, yeah, uh, you really had to get every single thing approved uh, uh by people on the other side of the planet uh, before you could implement any sort of programs and i think that could potentially slow us down a little bit back to your agility yes yeah. yeah you've got to be nimble you've got to be got to be quick and and to be fair come 2016 when i essentially got uh, left bmw i got got asked to to take another role one of the big Appeals of the role that was offered to me at that time was the fact that it was uh, independently owned, locally owned, and that the decision making was fast. And I really liked the idea of that because I was, uh, it's fair to say, I I was getting a little bit frustrated that I couldn't get things approved that I knew were going to have a positive effect on the business and I knew they were the right thing to do. And that, you know, thinking long range, it was going to be good overall. But for whatever reason, it was difficult to get these things approved these days because yeah, it was, yeah, there was a lot of people involved in the decision-making process all over the planet. And uh, you know, not everyone essentially had the same vision or you understood it the same way. And so the decision-making process and speed was beginning to be, be a little bit frustrating. So I, uh, I was offered a role with Armstrong Motor Group in New Zealand. And it was hard to leave BMW New Zealand. I I, you know, I certainly uh, had a had a great time there and experienced a lot of different things. And BMW is an organization, it's an awesome organization. And I had so many amazing experiences. Uh, with them and, you know, enjoy my time going up to Munich and uh, going on all these dealer experiences, product launches and conferences around the world, like incredible places and great people. And, you know, it was, was, I really look back on that and I learned a lot from it. And I think BMW does a lot of things well in terms of people development. Uh, They do a lot of things, best practice, uh, in terms of the, the programs they they roll out they're very innovative and forward thinking and you know, going up against the likes of the, the volkswagen group and the uh, Daimler chrysler and, and they the big companies uh so they they have to have to think differently and uh, i think some of the stuff a lot of stuff they were doing was was super impressive uh, and i took away a lot from my time there and learned a lot and they put me through a lot of you know leadership training that i i, I still use to this this very day and uh, yeah, it was it was hard to leave it was really uh, they they were talking to me about international opportunities as well and unfortunately as i said before I'd, I'd done my oe i'd done my international travel i'd come home to new zealand to get married have kids and raise my children there and the idea of moving to to munich or the idea of move, moving to another international market me and, and my wife basically made a joint decision that that was just not us at that time and the only next logical step in that in my career with bmw was actually to move overseas and go do the the expat assignments and uh, it seemed interesting at first uh, but when i started look, delving a bit deeper into it and i just kind of went oh, i'm not sure whether we want to go live in a gated community in sao paulo with an armored driver taking us and the children to work and to school and uh you know i spoke to a few people that, and, and that was one of the roles that got put in front of me it was a mini role in, in brazil and uh Sounded exotic at first, but then once, yeah, armed, security compounds and all that sort of stuff i i, I kind of said well yeah my kids yeah, are here at school in new zealand and and this is really good and we're really enjoying our life and i just don't want, really want to put them through that upheaval and uh, and I know a lot of people have done it and loved it and it works really well for some people we we just made the call that maybe that wasn't up for us so i was uh, at that point kind of committed to okay well let's let's see what else is out there in new zealand and then uh, of course the uh this role with the armstrong uh, group came up and uh, I, I took it
1: and that was a group a group role for group was it group managing director or something like that
0: yeah group group general manager so yeah armstrongs it's, they've got i think it was at the time 17 uh different franchises across 14 dealerships across the country so it was moving it was moving out of uh out of BMW to the, to the arch enemy, to be fair, it was Mercedes and, and Audi and, and all those brands, but no, no BMW brands and, uh, you know, a whole range of, you know, Toyota, Subaru. So it wasn't just premium brands. It was a, a lot of different brands across the country, but, but based out of Auckland uh, that was the role that, uh, that I was doing. And, uh, so it was interesting uh, to see how all the other brands uh, operate, and it was it was it was eye opening in terms of the, the ways that the different manufacturers deal with their uh, uh, their dealers, and uh, made me actually think that uh, the, the the BMW brands, or uh, well, the BMW New Zealand at least was was very consultative. Uh, in terms of the way that we dealt with the, the dealers. You know, we, uh, my approach was always let's you know, work together with the dealers. We're, we're in this together. We have to get them on board. We have to come up with solutions together uh, in order to 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 get a, a good result. And and then that was a, a big part of as well as how we got back to number one. And uh, I very quickly found that a lot of the OEMs, and I, I won't name names, but you know, they were, they were very much it's my way of the highway, and uh, dealers. If you don't like it, then uh, too bad. And uh, I, which I, I was quite surprised about. Actually, I thought that uh, that was uh, the general way that everyone would do things would be work closely with the dealers, and some, some did, but 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 some didn't. So uh, very very different from brand to brand. But uh, managed. That's those really companies.
1: yeah, that's very interesting, Greg. To be in that position where you've got a number of franchises under your responsibility and to be facing off to all of the different OEMs and seeing how culturally they treat the dealers that's uh yeah I'm, I haven't thought about that very interesting uh,
0: situation. Yeah, I, was in a, I was in one dealer meeting uh, on a brand and I won't name the brand but um in that role where we turned up and they basically just announced that they were shaving a percentage point off the dealer margin and it was it was the middle of the year. It wasn't like a planning for the next year. It was just mid middle of the year. Hey, you know, this is happening. So we're just we're changing the margin structure to this, of which I <laughs> I was like, I can't do that. And and I was saying to the guys that I can't do that. They they can't just announce that is going to happen as of next month with all our budgets and our plans. And uh, this is just. Uh, not acceptable, but everyone just went, well, that, you know, that's kind of how it is. So we just have to accept it and, and get on with it. And so we did, uh, but it was quite a foreign approach to me. I, I couldn't really envisage just sort of dictatorial uh, to the to the dealer network because my feeling was, you know, you're so interwoven with your, your dealers and that your success is, is shared on working together towards common goals so yeah that was quite an eye-opener
1: that is a privileged position to to have that uh, sight of all the different approaches and i've got to say this Greg, because i'm just thinking and i'm hoping that some of the wonderful wonderful people who owned and ran the dealers when i was there working with you i hope that they're listening to this and i'm picturing them now and and thinking you know i hope they realize how lucky
0: they were Oh, oh
1: absolutely
0: <laughs> absolutely Andy. i mean i, I you know, we no doubt uh you know, still, i hope
1: they'll be laughing with me
0: yeah, yeah i think some of some of the some of the bmw dealers we work with you know would have thought that we were dictatorial but i you know i think if they had exposure to what was probably happening in some of the other franchises they would have been thanking their lucky stars because i yeah you know, in retrospect, we were. We were very consultative, uh, and I think that was part of the reason for the success. So, yeah, uh, you know, I'm sure these other brands, yeah, they're successful, no doubt, and their dealers, yeah, are probably successful. But it was it was just a, a quite a start.
1: Different style, uh, yeah. And uh, and if they disagree, they can write to me. I'd love to hear from them. But... <laughs> Okay, so that was, I mean, what you talked about a very uh, rational approach again, then, Greg, deciding that for your rounding, you know, for your overall rounding as an automotive professional, then moving into, first of all, the after sales space and then into the, yeah, uh, this retail environment with different franchises absolutely, you know, does that super idea. Um, and so, what did that? Uh, what was the ending of that? What was the transition that uh, took you out of that into your next role?
0: Yeah, well, I mean, that role was, uh, as you say, it was a retail focus, so that was part of the allure there. And I'd been on the wholesale side, obviously working with the dealers very closely, so was exposed to retail, but wasn't actually in the hot seat, so to speak. But uh, the, the retail uh, part of it was that was the allure there, and the local ownership and the ability to, to make decisions uh, very quickly and um, yeah i mean that role i was getting a year into it i was i was getting my teeth stuck into it and uh, you know making changes with around structure and and you know, plans and so forth so i i was it was still reasonably early days and then I got a call from a recruiter uh, about a, a role at Turner's, and uh, I was certainly conflicted at that point because it was so early, uh, one year into the into the role, and yeah, you know, my my career uh, was arguably I was kind of a five years in a role. I kind of feel that five years is the minimum that you you probably would want to be in a in a role to really fully understand it and be able to make a difference. You know, it's year one. I don't think you're still probably learning and coming up to speed in year one before you can really be having impact. And then year two and three, you're making change and then you start seeing the difference and all the fruits of your labor and all the the, the long-term strategic difference uh, programs that you put in and and the impact they have over that kind of year three, four, five. And So whenever I go into a role, I I, I do think I'm I'm going to be here for a while uh, because I'm I'm not going to be able to make change and and make a difference for at least a few years. So it kind of kicked off that process there and um, it was the only one year in. And uh, then I got this call and I was certainly conflicted from a, well, I've only just started making change here and the job is not done. On the flip side of that, went along and and agreed to uh, to meet with the the guys from Turners, and I was just blown away by the feel I got for it and the opportunity uh, in that business. And I guess this was transitioning out of new into used uh, because my experience in the car world had been new, and then going into into a used only uh, business, which is, is Turners' core business. We we don't have any uh, any new franchises, and so it was quite a change from that perspective. But just the people there that i met with uh the the culture what was important to them in terms of actually you know, the, the people in the business uh and i guess the opportunity that was put in front of me in terms of you know market sh- current market share and where it could go to and it opened my eyes to wow this is this is really a, a role uh where i could control my own destiny um you know it's not necessarily dependent on OEM relationships it's actually you know you're making the decisions at the 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 cold face and uh, looking at the data around the used cars and seeing I guess what was happening there a very fragmented market in terms of lots of little dealers and looking at the Turner's brand and the I guess the potential that was there it all just at the end of the day I weighed up my pros and my cons and did the 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 pros and cons list as I guess most people do as they uh, weigh up any new job opportunity that's put in front of them. And essentially the, the pros outweighed the cons quite significantly. So I decided to take that role. Uh, and that's the, the the current role that I'm in today, which is the CEO of Turner's Group New Zealand.
1: You say you weighed up the pros and cons, and that sounds like, again, a very rational approach, Greg. <laughs> At the same time, I'm hearing excitement. I'm hearing you evaluating the opportunity that was put in front of you and and getting excited about the opportunity to change things and the the amount of change you might be able to make the you know how much you might be able to move the needle in that environment how ripe it was to be changed and then also the cultural side the importance of how they talked about people and and so I to say a bit more about um, so, whilst it was a rational decision, it sounds like there was some emotional motivation. There was like, some excitement about wow, what this could be, and and. Uh, but you, you know, my particular passion is is the people and the culture side. So, what was it about that that uh, you found exciting and appealing and enough to you know to help draw you there?
0: Well, yeah. Look, I think uh, on the people front, it was just the the language and the tonality and uh, the the empathy uh, and. There was a lot of talk about uh, the, the people in the business and making sure that the fit was right with, with, with me, with the, the, the leadership team, with the wider business, uh, which I, I was, was a positive because I, I certainly got the sense that these people are very conscious of taking care of, of their people and generating a, a positive culture. It felt like it was it was paramount uh, in the conversations I was having uh, with them around people, and it kept coming up. And I'm, I'm passionate about positive culture, and uh, yeah, I think that yeah, there's a there's a famous uh, saying out there that you know, culture eats strategy for breakfast. And yeah, you know, I'm, I'm I'm passionate about culture, but I'm well aware that if you don't have your people engaged and all heading in the same direction, that you could have the best strategy in the in the world, but it's going to fall over on its face if if everyone isn't committed to making it happen. And yeah, I think uh, you know, there's a lot of business I've been in. There's been very variations of how committed people are and how good the culture is. But I, I got the sense that the, the Turner's uh, environment was was very focused on that, and it was it was positive to start with. But there was certainly more opportunity to, to develop that and bring my own flavour to uh, to it. So that was was incredibly appealing, as well as the the realization of okay. These guys are actually on the cusp of doing something great here and in the used car world, uh, there's no one that's really doing an amazing job that can bring, I guess, the potential of this brand and the scale and I guess a corporate big box approach to an industry that is quite fragmented. Uh, so it felt like, okay, well, there's, there is actually something something big. There's a big opportunity here, and uh, if it's approached in the right way, then it, it could really take off. So between those two things, I was sold, and I, I said, well, that's uh, that feels like I can't turn this opportunity down. It's just too good to, to be true. Uh, so that was uh, the, the deciding end, end factor for me, and I, I took that role, and here I am.
1: And how many years are you into this role?
0: Uh, five years in in August, so yeah, about four and a half uh, years. Uh, and yeah, I love it. It's great, great company. I've made the right decision, one hundred percent. The culture and this business is uh, is super strong. Everyone is really committed. We're gonna yeah. We run a, a system called Picon, uh, which is uh, like an employee engagement survey or platform when you know every every three months we survey the staff or we're asking them you know what they like what they don't like rating us out of 10 in terms of the way that we do things and uh and how, what they think of the business and yeah it's it started off uh pretty good and it's just gone from strength to strength and we're everyone in the business and all my leadership team is absolutely bought into the you know let's make sure our team are happy because overall we're going to those people are going to stick around for longer and they're going to give more and everyone's going to be working towards the same goal and you know, our, our guiding principles and our vision and so forth. So uh, that is, that's that's you know, what I probably talk about the most uh, with the, with people in the business, with the leadership team. And uh, we've seen those engagement scores just go from strength to strength. And when now uh, we get, This platform benchmarks us against similar industries and similar businesses of similar size. We've got about 500 people in the business now, so it's benchmarking us against retail organisations of 500 people, 500 to 1,000 people, I think it is. Uh, And we are in the top 10% of businesses like that in terms of our engagement scores. So we know we're we're heading in the right direction and our business results back that up right and we have uh we've certainly through the face of covid and there's some market stuff going on there which is is driving uh that up over the last year or two in regards to margins and and results but yeah we're, we're going we're going really well
1: And um, what you mentioned your focus being making sure people are happy greg to to be engaged and what what would you say are some of the keys what does make them happy what are you uh, making sure you have in place to achieve that
0: well I think uh, it's definitely you need to make sure that they feel like they're being heard Uh, so you know like a big part of our engagement process around this tool is they give us feedback we take that feedback and and we commit to, we, we will take on board your feedback and we will make change. So we will put in action plans that are hearing what you're saying and, you know, in order to change whatever the situation is, then here's the steps that we're going to take in order to improve that. And then we will track and monitor that and report back and, you know, on a, you know whether it's a national, the whole business or different teams have their own uh, programs going on. But we are tracking our manager's. On their ability to be able to respond to that feedback and to come up with action plans, uh, and uh, that the staff know that we've we've taken it seriously, we've taken it on board, and we've we've taken action because of that feedback. So, uh, I think that is probably the fundamental thing that makes people feel like they want to be at an organisation is if their voices are heard, and when they say something isn't going well or something could be improved, that we actually take that seriously and put in plans to to change it. Mm.
1: is there anything i haven't asked you greg that i should have done Have i missed an opportunity
0: i don't think so it feels like i've uh, done a lot of talking here andy so <laughs> that's <laughs> why that's, that's, the, that's <laughs> i feel like I've, I've probably covered it off uh, covered everything off i mean yeah i mean the role that I'm in at the moment, I think is it's it's quite a unique organisation where we're, we're part of a listed company. The Turner's Automotive Group is, is a listed company. It owns four businesses, which is Turner's, uh, the, the auto retail side of it, which is buying and selling cars and, and trucks and, and machinery and so forth. That's the business I run. There's a finance company, Oxford. Uh, there's an auto, insurance company, Autoshore. And there's a credit control company called EC Credit. So it's like, the board or local so we're able to make decisions in conjunction with the board and they're very accessible very quickly and i think being be, having that nimble aspect we've got there's corporate and there's governance so it's it, it is done in the right way and it's uh, and it's done you know there's, there's there's a lot of thinking and process and analysis that goes on behind it but it's not paralysis by analysis and we can move pretty quickly and i think between the fact that we can move quickly make decisions quickly we're nimble uh with with the corporate aspect to it and the strong focus on on people all of those three things add up uh to a pretty uh winning formula and uh the business overall is is, is going very well and i certainly myself you know have never worked anywhere like this i think it strikes the perfect balance and i'm i'm very happy with the, the move and uh happy with how things going and i think uh, there's a big opportunity uh in front of us and when we look at businesses across the UK and the States and there's like the CarMax in the states, and there's the car shop in, in the UK, and there's other ones more online focused. I think uh, Kazoo and Kavana, and uh, we we certainly have aspirations uh, of uh, emulating what those guys are doing, and we're 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 heading down that road. And in the digital space, we are uh, we've we've got you know, an IT team or digital team of almost fifty people, and uh, we're very committed to uh, to the digital future, and uh, we're ready to go. For the whole online interaction, and we we're, we're, we're heading down that track, but uh, interestingly, I don't think Kiwis are, despite the COVID situation, are quite ready to uh, buy cars sight unseen like they they are in the UK and in the US. That uh, that seems to be gathering steam in those markets more so than than here. I think <laughs> Kiwis still like to kick the tires and see the car, uh, but yeah, we we can we can do full contactless sales and delivery uh, but uh, most people still want to come in and and, mm. and see it drive it and smell it before they actually buy it that being said we've put in things like a seven day money back guarantee to give them the ability to to get out of those those cars should there be any uh, uh, any issues with it but uh, that I mean that is the is essentially the way of the, the, the future. It's just probably a, a matter of time that uh, becomes the norm in, in New Zealand, like it's gathering uh, pace and momentum in, in the States and in the UK.
1: Yeah, and uh, so you're definitely in an interesting part of the industry that's uh, transforming rapidly, as you say, across the world. And I'm pleased to say we've had guests from Kazoo and uh, from Kavana. On the show, if you like. So, uh, if you want to check them out and find out what they what they might be thinking about now, then uh, yeah. that, that's there. Rupert Pontin and uh, Leopold Fisser.
0: Yeah, it's a, it's amazing. You know you look at the valuations of these companies; uh, are just uh, unbelievable as to you know, what the market's pitching them at. So, no doubt, the opportunity is there, uh, whether it's uh, in North America, or in Europe, or in this part of the world.
1: Indeed, quite remarkable. So excellent to talk to you Greg thank you for sharing your story with me and with our listeners today I there was a number of yeah you know, concepts ideas that came up throughout your journey I, I make a habit of just summarizing afterwards some of the things that stood out for me and uh I'll I'll do that and uh yeah thanks very much for joining me great to talk with you again
0: yeah, thanks for having me, uh, Andy. And yeah, really nice to to see you again. It's uh, been, been way too long since uh, I've seen you down this part of the world. So I will uh,
1: second some... that. Here, here. There's definitely. Yeah, uh, it's we're long overdue over Yeah, today. yeah.
0: Well, you, you, I, I did see at one point you came back down for a visit. Eh? So uh, so hopefully, when the world gets back to some normality, you can get back down this way again.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Thanks very much, Greg. All the best. Enjoy the rest of your day.
0: Yeah, enjoy your evening. Thanks very much. Cheers. Cheers. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. bye
1: you have been listening to Career View Mirror with me, Andy Follows. I hope you found some helpful points to reflect on in Greg's story that can help you with your own career journey or that of those you lead, parent or mentor. You are unique. And during my conversation with Greg, you'll have picked up on topics that resonate with you. For me, a few elements stood out. The disappointment of realising he was blind and therefore not able to be a pilot and follow in his father's footsteps that he lost his mum at a relatively early age and how tough I imagine that was. The fun that he had in the early years once he'd got university done, he went snowboarding for a couple of years and then did his overseas experience. He wasn't in too much of a hurry to get into a career and he made of the most of the time that he had before he did that and when he did get into a career mode taking it very seriously finding himself feeling very at home in Saatchi and Saatchi with the culture and the work ethic there and the creativity and how it fitted that time of life that he was in as well how he then transitioned from an advertising agency into automotive and the the differences he observed there. approach to career decisions based on asking himself, what am I missing? Or what will make me more rounded? And as a result of that, he gained experience in sales and marketing, in after sales, in retail. And each time he became more rounded and therefore more attractive to his next employer. The importance of a positive culture. How can we make people happy? Was how he put it. And the result of that being how engaged they become and what that does for the culture, the environment, the productivity. But also the role that chance plays in the direction we take. If his friend Adam hadn't overstayed in the US, Greg wouldn't have met his wife. And if Adam's stepmother hadn't asked Adam that day what Greg was up to, he wouldn't have been approached about the mini role. And if he'd not taken that, so many other steps wouldn't have opened up. I don't know about you. I try so hard to feel in control of what I'm doing and my journey and and so on. And it is interesting to be reminded of the luck that's involved. It takes a little bit of the pressure off, maybe. You can contact Greg via LinkedIn. Uh, and there's a link in the show notes to this episode. We, pu- we publish these episodes, as you'll know by now, to celebrate my guest careers, listen to their stories, and learn from their experiences. And I'm genuinely interested in what resonated with you. If you have any comments or feedback, if you've got questions, or if Greg's Insights have helped you, then do let us know by leaving a review. Your feedback helps us to grow. You can leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser, Or you can find the episode on our Instagram at CareerViewMirror and comment there. Wherever you do it, I don't mind. Just any feedback from you, any reviews, always appreciated. And thank you to all of you who've shared your feedback so far. Thanks also to Hannah and Julia who, as part of the Career View Mirror team here at Aqualai, works so hard to deliver these episodes to you. Aqualai is a boutique consultancy in the auto finance and mobility industry. We offer our expertise as a service to help you design and deliver projects that develop your business and the people within it. Contact me if you'd like to know more about that. If you want to know more about who our next guests are going to be, then follow us on Instagram at Career View Mirror. And remember, folks, if you know people who would benefit from hearing these stories, please show them how to find us. Thanks for listening.